0: This is Life Admin Life Hacks, a podcast that gives you techniques, tips and tools to tackle your life admin more efficiently, to save your time, your money and improve your household harmony.
1: I'm Dinah Roe-Roberts, an operations manager that's always embraced meal planning to help me deal with the complexity of the various dietary requirements of the members of my household.
0: I'm Mia Northrop, a researcher and writer who is just thrilled to discover the term for my new tummy tyre is menopause. Hello and welcome to Life Admin Life Hacks. Listeners, one of the areas you've asked for help with is meal planning in households where everyone wants to eat something different because of different preferences or needs to eat something different due to different dietary restrictions and navigating that alongside your own food preferences if you're trying to manage your weight or deal with perimenopause and the different impact food has on your body.
1: So in this episode, we reached out to interview an expert, accredited practicing dietitian, Annie Barry, who talks with us about how to plan meals that help you glow, grow and go, balancing the whole food with soul food and foods to embrace to support the perimenopause transition. If you want a reality check on what healthy eating is really about, then listen on.
0: This episode is brought to you by our signature program, The Art of Adulting. Our next intake of members is in February and each month we bring you masterclasses and mindset sessions to help you get on top of life admin and stay on top.
1: Our topics include time management, decluttering, organising digital photos, plus setting up your foundational life admin tools.
0: There's also weekly co-working sessions where you can do your hour of power alongside other members from our private community for extra motivation and accountability.
1: This is a monthly membership that meets you where you are with sessions and resources for those wondering how to begin and those who just want to consistently follow through and the support to stay organized. Head to lifeadminlifehacks.com to check it out
0: and jump on the wait list. (laughs) Annie Barry is an accredited practicing dietitian, health coach and habit change practitioner who is passionate about pushing back against diet culture and a firm believer that life's too short to skip the wine or the joy of eating your favorite food. Hurrah! (laughs) Annie runs All Round Wellness, an online consulting business where she provides a 12-week individually tailored coaching program to help women regain control of their weight, mood, and energy without restrictive eating. Whether you're getting peri-ready or have already hit the menopause transition, Annie is on a mission to help women work smarter, not harder, when it comes to their health and nutrition.
1: Oh, Annie, thanks so much for coming on the show.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. I am a little bit of a fangirl of you guys. <laughs> I feel like it's a real uh, cue cool to be on the podcast.
1: Look, as Mia said, you've worked in this space for you know, more than 15 years across private, practice, community health, everything. Like let's start. How did food get so complicated?
2: Interesting, because for me, it is all about simplifying things. And I think it's, I really just think it's also about the amount of inputs and messaging that we get. You know, we used to learn about food, maybe from our teachers at school or a little bit at home. And now we have, you know, TV, we've got Instagram, we've got Facebook, we've got so books, you know, there is so much input. That massive increase in input obviously means that there's going to be very broad opinions and now we're exposed to the entire spectrum through our range of sort of options of, of seeking information. And I think that, yeah, we're just kind of lost in the middle of it all at the moment.
0: Yeah, I feel like every time you jump on social media or you listen to the radio or news program or whatever it is, you're hearing about some new food ideology And it's confusing. It's confusing to know, you know, is there research behind this? Like, what's the truth? What is the latest research on what is actually a healthy way to eat?
2: I think we can really simplify things. And look, we've got Australian dietary guidelines and they're actually not about extra start and you know people have been arguing about whether they're right and whether they're wrong but reality is is that 90% of Australians don't follow them anyway yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so how do we even know if they're right or wrong so you know we do have some really basic great guidelines we talk. It's about our core food group, the types of foods that we need to be eating on a daily basis and, you know, the, the different requirements that we might have at different ages and stages. These guidelines of are being reviewed at the moment and we'll probably have a new sort of release, I think, 2024. But you know, just looking at your basic five food groups, which you've got your fruits, your vegetables, your grains and cereals, your meat or meat alternatives, and then your, you know, dairy foods or plant alternatives, it's a really good place to start. I
0: didn't know we had Australian dietary guidelines. <laughs> I the food pyramid. I'm assuming it's not the food pyramid and that we've come away from that because that didn't that kind of get debunked? It's not really version of. It's
2: a version of. But I mean, yeah, the the basics of our dietary guidelines are around sort of eating more from our core food groups and less of our discretionary foods, which are going to be those foods that are high in sort of added sugars and saturated fat, alcohol, those sorts of
0: things. So it's still very much sort of eating a wide range of unprocessed food, like food that's as close to its normal source, its original source as possible. Is that what you're talking about? And the discretionary foods are all those refined things. And Yeah.
2: So there's a really nice Michael Pollan quote, which is, I think it's, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And I really love that because it really kind of simplifies things. So I think that we have unnecessarily complicated things. This to give you some really interesting stats, like 90% of Australian adults are not eating enough vegetables. And I think around sort of over 50% are not eating enough fruit. So if we're kind of looking to really simplify things, you know, those stats can be really powerful.
0: Yeah. So what is enough vegetables and enough fruit? What, are the, what do the guidelines say we should be eating? <laughs> So this is where
2: our two and five comes in. So it's around two serves of fruit and a serve is about a piece of fruit or little fruits like apricots would be two. Two apricots would equal a serve and five serves of veg. So a serve of veg is roughly a cup of salad veg or half a cup of veg. So how I normally sort of translate this to my clients is that we need to be eating vegetables at at least two occasions or two meals across the day if we're going to be getting close to to meeting our serves.
1: And so is that what we're all getting wrong? Is that like the biggest thing that Australians are getting wrong when it comes to eating well and managing our weight? Is it kind of the fruits and veggies or is it more complicated than that?
2: It's a really big one. So probably what I would say is the biggest one is that our intake of those discretionary foods that I mentioned before. So they're sort of foods that are not needed to meet our nutrition requirements and tend to be quite high in calories and and our saturated sugars, sugars, salts, etc. Our intake of these discretionary foods is too high. So I think the stats have sit at around kind of 30% of our intake are these discretionary foods. And it doesn't mean that there's not room for these foods uh, in a balanced diet. It's just that our current intake is too high. Which means that then, okay, if we're uh, filling our intake with these foods, what are we missing out on? And we're definitely missing out in terms of our plants, so our fruits and vegetables, which means that, you know, our fiber is going to be taking a hit as well. The other thing was also that when we're thinking about sort of our fruits and cereals and grains, that bad rap the moment particularly you know with the popularity of diets like keto is that we're probably sort of consuming too many refined cereal products rather than sort of getting in really fibrous whole grain products as well so i think it's sort of that combination of increased discretionary food and not enough from those poor food groups
0: okay and I guess one of the things that we're also getting lots of messages about, it's not just what to eat in terms of whether you're going like Mediterranean diet or keto or paleo or one of my cousins is doing carnivore right now. And I'm like, she's <laughs> yeah, I'm like experiment away, see what works for you. But it's also about when to eat. So there's all this talk about different types of fasting, whether it's time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting or circadian fasting. There's so many different sort of flavours what do you think is worthwhile exploring when it comes to that kind of, you know, when to eat strategy?
2: It's a really good question. And the first question that I'll always ask is, you know, for what? Because People are like, oh, it's fasting good. I'm like, for what? For, for weight loss, for how you feel, for sleep, for, you know, so it really comes down to what your goals are and, and what you're trying to to get up out of the process. In terms of fasting for weight loss, it's not you know it's not any more effective or less effective than other methods and so you know if it's something that suits you then then that's fine in terms of sort of general health and well-being again it comes down to to the individual A good example that i often have is that for women who might exercise or train in the morning Is that, you know, potentially we don't, depending on the intensity of what you're doing, you you might not want to be doing that fasted because you're not going to get the appropriate performance. And so that's an example of where something like an intermittent fasting, where you're fasting throughout the morning might not suit you. As a general guide, I think it's great for us to have a decent break. Really overnight where we're not consuming food so it can be problematic for some of my clients they might be sleeping sort of late in the evening 10 11 o'clock at night and then having early breakfast when they wake up which means that the body really doesn't have much time where it's sort of resting and recovering so you know i think sort of generally speaking as a kind of realistic guide i would suggest if we can get 10 11 12 hours you know first of the evening where we're not eating then i think that that's a really positive thing in terms of sort of adding in additional hours of fasting or having fasting days, that will come down to the individual and their goals. Mm.
0: And in terms of, you know, the timing of meals, there's kind of, what's that old saying? It's like you breakfast like a king, you have lunch like a queen and a <laughs> <I'm> totally destroying <laughs> it. And then you have dinner like a pauper. Yeah is that still you know is there science behind that in terms of saying yes you should have your bigger meal earlier in the day and kind of you know taper i guess so that you have that big break overnight your body can heal and restore itself is there truth in that
2: yeah absolutely actually is and i think that that's sort of uh something that particularly for women sort of in the the perimenopause menopause transition And i think this is definitely something that we would look Look ahead in terms of making sure that we're starting the day with a really protein breakfast. There is some theory behind, sort of, a, I guess, going a little bit lighter at night in terms of saving sort of more of our carbohydrate distribution. So things like our so whole grain breads, so our rice, and pastas, saving those for a little bit earlier in the day or around the time of day when we're most active, and perhaps going a little bit lighter at night. The thing for me, though, is always bridging the gap between what's perfect and what's practical because for some people, you know, that's the time evenings when they sit down and they have a meal with their family and so it's mm. about sort of trying to to balance all of those things as well. So I think uh, I think sometimes good enough is good enough and, and if it's not perfect, then that's okay. So it's just finding that middle ground between sort of what's scientifically perfect and what's practical for people in their day-to-day life.
0: Mm. Yeah. That's a really good point because there are so many, you know, health podcasts I listen to and they'll say, oh, you know, this is a great way to eat. And I'm like, hmm, what does that actually look like for a family when you're having breakfast in 20 minutes and trying to get kids out the door? And there's probably, <laughs> you know, you might not necessarily be cooking a, a cooked brekkie. It's likely to be porridge or cereal or, you know, something that gets them out pretty quickly. And you're packing stuff in a lunchbox that's got a certain size. And you want things to stay, you know, not go off during the day in terms of what you can put in the lunchbox. It's not going to be refrigerated. And then, yeah, you have your family meal when you can actually sit down and slow down and spend more time on cooking. It's actually kind of, you know, the rhythm in the household is kind of actually flips that entire idea of when you would have your bigger meal and when you would taper those things. How How do we reconcile sort of what's potentially most healthy for us versus the way that we actually live. Just
2: sort of making some small tweaks and changes, you know. So I mentioned sort of having a nice protein packed breakfast doesn't mean that you have to sit down and have a nice cooked eggs and spinach and mushies and, and a bit of toast, you know. So there's nice and quick quick ways that we can do that. And same again, sort of thinking about evening meal, this is where some small tweaks can come in in terms of making some small substitutions or perhaps just the way that you portion the meal out on your plate might be slightly different to, you know, other members of the household. So it's just sort of, again, this is sort of what I do with my clients. Often people think that it's delving deep into the science of what we do. Yes, you know, that's part of it, but it's also like, okay, when are you making lunch? And exactly that, like I had a client who gets the tram to work, and she didn't want to carry four hundred containers to work. So we had to figure out how to make her lunch nice and compact, but we're still going to meet her needs. So half of what I do is just kind of talking through all of these logistics, life admin
0: hacks or <laughs> eating. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yep, <laughs> it's an industry. Interesting... Yes. So what do you have a breakfast, Annie? What and what would you suggest the people do if they are not if they don't... Time for the eggs and the bacon and the spinach and the mushrooms. What is a good protein packed brecky?
2: So preference. I'm being smoothie obsessed for a while now. So smoothie is my go-to. But also, you know, I understand smoothies are not also appealing for people in winter. So basically, we can turn anything into a higher protein option. So, you know, this is where some products, sometimes like protein powders, can be helpful. I don't sort of necessarily suggest that people kind of sweet protein drinks all day every day but perhaps you know supplementing with something like a protein powder or a higher protein yogurt can turn something like a porridge or a cereal into a breakfast that's a, that's then higher protein there's also options as well there's higher protein breads that don't make great sandwiches but aren't too bad in the toaster as well so that then you know we can we can have if you like just veggie martin toast in the morning we can turn that into a higher protein option so there's lots of sort of different ways but I mean I love breakfast foods but we can turn cereal toast porridge oats smoothies into a really sort of nourishing breakfast pretty easily with a, a few small tweaks.
0: What do you have for breakfast diet these days? I love getting into the nitty-gritty of what is actually everyone eating?
1: <laughs> I do actually have eggs quite a lot. You know, if I if my morning has gone to plan, that's what I will have or um, I will have toast with Vegemite on the days that I'm in a hurry. What about you, Mia? You have some production line don't you where you prepare your breakfast in advance. I do I
0: have (laughs) these little pots that I have that I put yogurt and nuts and seeds and some berries in and I make a big batch of that on the weekend I can just stand there and line them all up and doll it all out and I have that but we like we have eggs a lot I make eggs for the kids in the morning I'll have scrambled eggs or a soft boiled egg and some bacon and some toast or they'll have porridge. I think what's worth considering is that actually cooking a breakfast like that does not take as long as you think. Like it's, yeah, it might feel like it's a big production and, oh, we couldn't possibly be like cooking brekkie. Um, It it takes like 15 minutes. So I think when we've got, you know, I I know exactly what the kids like. I stop asking them what they want for breakfast because it's just like I know what what they like. Unless it's the weird weather and the funny moods. Try and introduce some variety and just like we're having baked beans today. We're having eggs today. You know, it's porridge today. And then on the weekend it's a car crash of waffles and pancakes. (laughs) And we have bacon with it. So there's some protein in there. (laughs) Yeah, does it of, doesn't often take as long as you think to make something that's a bit more substantial.
2: Yeah, and I do find that a lot. It's often the perception of sort of the difficulty or the time required for it to last. And the same again for cooking dinner. Sometimes it's perceived that it will be quicker to get way away. That's when you break it down by the time you've ordered it and you wait for it or you go pick it up. You know, you probably could have done a really nice Oh, yeah,
0: you totally could have. <laughs>
2: Sometimes sort of then breaking it down, like, so that we've got some really quick, easy backup options so that that feels easy. If it feels easy, we'll do it. If it feels hard, we won't.
1: Yeah. So maybe we should chat a bit more about meal planning. Mia and I are huge fans of meal planning. Yeah.
0: It's one thing that does start to make things feel easier. Yeah, Yeah,
1: and it definitely does. You know, if you are thinking about mixing up your breakfasts and things, you kind of do need to do that planning so that you make sure you've got the right ingredients and you've got the right headspace. But if you're a single person, uh, is it worth meal planning?
2: Absolutely. Like, you know, as a we all experience the same thing in the sense that we get to the end of our day, we've already made a billion decisions during the day, and then we've got that sort of mental fatigue and what the heck are we going to put within us? So, family, single, whoever, I do think that, you know, having systems in place when it comes to meal planning is, is really important. I think it's also really important to acknowledge that planning and meal planning can look really different for everybody. We don't sort of all need to have that Instagram perfect fridge where all our meals for the week are nicely prepared in containers. There's lots of sort of different types of meal planning that you can do. And it's, as always, for me with my clients, it's about merging the right strategy to the right person just sort of not getting stuck in that one size fits all that there's a couple of different things that we can do so you know we could think about you know meal planning could be cooking a whole meal or it could be chopping up some ingredients or it might be just marinating some meat or some protein so that you've got you know the components of the meal ready to go it might be using meal kits like hello fresh or marley spoon or it might be getting your meals fully cooked and delivered, ready to go, you know. So it it really depends on your preferences and your budget and what's kind of worth your household.
0: Yeah, it's nice to sort of take that wider perspective with meal planning and know there's a few different levers you can pull to add that convenience and ease into your week and thinking about, yeah, is it how many meals am I doing? Is it breakfast, lunch and dinner? Is it every day? Is it some of the days? Is it full bulk meal prep or just thinking about just having an idea of what you're going to cook? on a day and knowing that you've shopped and you've got the ingredients, that gets you halfway the there. At least you know there's food in the fridge and there's a plan for how you're going to use it, which is certainly not the way that I used to operate. I used to have like the 5 o'clock freakouts, what's <laughs> for dinner, what's in the thing, and I was married to someone who could do like the super chef thing or the, what was that show surprise chef ready steady cook well you
1: got like yes, yes. Some
0: random ingredients make something happen and he could do that i i, I can't operate like that yeah that's my super skill too <laughs> well
2: my partner's the gourmet cook and i'm the okay crap we haven't got anything what can we make out of the pantry sort of person <laughs>
0: I feel like there's other fridges now where you can just type it, or you can type it into Chat GPT and say, "This is what I have. What can I cook?" And Chat GPT will tell you. And
1: I mean, I think then the next thing to talk about is like, how do you meal plan when you've got people in your family who have all different kinds of any requirements? So you might have people who've got celiac and so want to be gluten-free, lactose intolerant, other intolerances and actually I've got my in-laws coming to stay with me shortly who one gluten-free, one type 1 diabetic and it always does freak me out a little bit about oh like how am I going to adjust our meal plan to kind of suit them. So how can we approach this in a you know sustainable way when you've got all of these different dietary requirements?
2: It's a really great question and it comes up a lot with my clients sort of people free Like, oh gosh, my partner's high cholesterol and my kid doesn't like this, and now I've got to watch my weight. Like, am I cooking three separate meals?
0: Yeah, this is the question we get a lot.
2: So what I often start with is just helping people understand the components of a balanced meal, because then once you understand the framework, then it's a little bit easier to sort of mix and match or things in and out. So This is also something that we can talk to our kids about as well. So I get people to usually just think about their plate and put it into four quarters or four quadrants. So two of those quadrants or half the plate could be our vegetables or salads. This is where our plants are coming in. A quarter of the plate is based around our protein. So that could be things like meat or chicken, fish, eggs, or it could be things like tofu or tempeh, lentils or legumes. And then the quarter of the plate is our carbohydrates so this is things like our rice our pasta grains breads wraps or sort of more of our starchy veg so think like your potato or your sweet potato so once we've got that framework then what we can do is have a look at okay are there in terms of preferences do we have kind of shared preferences around protein does the whole family like chicken grub Does everybody like rice? Great. Okay, what veggies do we have? And so having that framework can be really helpful in terms of understanding how we split things in. The other thing is, is that this framework can be used for kids as well. So we might just change the proportions slightly, like they might have a third, a third, third a third protein. And we can talk to them the way that I usually sort of frame that instead of talking about proteins, carbs and fats, is that we can talk about our go foods, which are our carbs, our fuel grow foods, which are our proteins, now glow foods, which are our plants, which help us glow from. Your- Ooh, <laughs> I am writing this down. So there's never a, a tongue twister, go, grow and glow. But it's just also nice that if, if you want to have that conversation about sort of food, there's that's some nice language that you can use. But also, it just goes that the framework can be applied to different people at different ages and stages. It's just that the proportions might change slightly for kids. When we're thinking about adults, the portions might be slightly bigger. You would still use that sort of uh, framework. Me, as a smaller female with a desk job, my energy needs aren't huge, whereas if your partner is a builder uh, on their feet all day or somebody works at a hospital moving around on their feet all day and clocks up the kilometres, then their energy needs might be great Using that framework first off means that you know that you, in a balanced meal, we've got our protein, we've got our plants, and we've got our hydrate. Do we have sort of shared options? So, for example, in terms of making a change for a vegetarian dish, the rest of the family's having chicken, you could sub out some marinated tofu, and then you've still got that nice sort of homework. I think the issue is sometimes when we are trying to adapt to meals, we remove a category. So, for example, vegetarian eating, often what we do is that we remove the meat protein, but we don't necessarily replace it and we just increase the portion. So we know we're going to be nailing our nutrition if we're using that framework. So what you can have a think about is the different proteins that you might use in your household, different carbohydrates, the different veggies, and
0: that sort of can be a really good way to start. Are
2: there plates out
0: there that have, like, portions on them? Like, have the quarters
2: yeah, there are, there are. They do exist. They do exist. I'd say so some people, yeah, some of my clients have bought those in the past and they like them. But I mean, it's it's a basic kind of stuff, uh, visual that you can use. We don't necessarily need to be measuring or weighing everything, but just having that sort of brush framework in mind, you can eyeball the plate and it's a, a really good place to start. The other thing that I would really encourage people to do is, I mean, there's I'm not going to sort of go over all of the, the meal planning, things because you guys have already outlined some really great strategies. But the other thing I'd really encourage people to do is write things down. Like if you've got some family meals that you, everyone's mm-hmm. like, oh, that's great, write it down it to the list and start to create your own sort of meal Bible. Because I know personally, like I go blank. When I'm on the spot and thinking about cooking something, it's like tumbleweeds. I can't think of anything that I've ever cooked or enjoyed <laughs> before. Whereas some of my clients might just have phone notes or even Excel or, a, you know, a Google doc where they just note down what the, the favorite family meals are. And over time, they can sort of build up their repertoire. Whereas I think sometimes we, we forget about it and then go. Remember it four <laughs> years later and go.
0: To- <laughs> you know what? That's when those Hello Fresh recipe cards come in handy because every time we had one of them that it was a hit, I'm like, I'm keeping that one. Yeah, I still have a stack. I still have a stack of them that that were successful, and I literally have a thing in my meal plan at the moment that's called Chicken Dinner Winner because everybody loved it and raved about it, and they're like, we have to remember what this combo was so we can <laughs> replicate it the chicken dinner winner. Oh, funny.
2: Yeah, I do think that that's really helpful, just having your own sort of little, creating your own recipe book us of family favourites and and go-tos. And also then sort of merging down where you can make some substitutions to account for different dietary requirements.
1: Yeah, and if you want to go digital with that, I recommend, highly recommend the Paprika app. I don't know if if you've used it, but you can basically forward recipes to the app that you find on the web and it will save it all for you and you can put categories in And you can give it ratings out of stars and stuff. We use that in our house and it's very helpful.
2: Yeah, we use paprika as well. Uh, Actually, we use a a combination of things. We use sort of a Google Keep shared notes for our shopping list. And also that's where we'll jot down sort of what we're doing for dinner. We've also got a little whiteboard on the fridge and we also use paprika as well. So ours is a bit of a sort of mishmash of,
0: of things, but it works. Yeah, that's great. You've got to find the tools that work for you that are just convenient. Oh, I love that. Well,
1: many of our listeners are women who are experiencing perimenopause or menopause, and we talked about that a little bit earlier. But what sort of foods should those women who are in that stage of their life be thinking about in terms of things that might make symptoms worse or, or those sorts of things? Talk us through how you coach people who are facing this life change.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a big one and I feel like as women the goalposts continually shift throughout our life and we just get used to one stage and settle in and then the goalposts shift again and that's sort of how I feel very menopause that that transition is. What I will say is that, you know, with a with the hormonal changes that come with perimenopause like lifestyle interventions such as diet and exercise are really important but they don't replace medical management and so the first thing I'll usually say is make sure that you've got a great GP who understands perimenopause and menopause and can comp- Provide adequate support. In terms of sort of what happens during this time, like the estrogen plays so many roles in the body. As it declines, we do start to see some changes. And so that can impact things like our mass, particularly our visceral m- m- shot that sort of shoots around our organs in that middle there. I'm
0: nodding vigorously, <laughs> nodding, nodding, nodding. Menopots, which I don't love. Menopot! Oh my God, that's <laughs> awful! <laughs> It's awful, and I have one. Oh my god, I just find it incredible. Like, as you said, Addie, you, you know, as women, you go through these different transitions with your body. And you know, if you've had kids, you go through pregnancy, you're like, Oh, this is so fascinating! And then you get to this stage, you're like, This is so fascinating and bloody awful. You <laughs> me and my menopot, oh my god, keep going.
2: Uh, I just, female body is just bloody incredible, and but I do think that we have to manage a lot, you know, and menopause is is another one of those things. So. When it comes to, I guess, sort of lifestyle measures that we can take to support this transition, there's a couple of things. I'll touch on exercise briefly. Um, obviously, as a dietitian, exercise is not my area of expertise, but, you know, it is really important at this time for a couple of reasons. One, we get this decline in muscle mass, and so it's really important that we are, it's it is a case of move it or lose it, like we do need to be using our muscles to protect our muscle mass. It's going to affect things like our function, mobility, balance down the track, so making that investment now is important. And the other thing is is that the research suggests that this is a time in our lives where we're less physically active. And it makes sense. We're often busy, we've got kids, we might have aging parents, we might be in the middle of our, you know, careers, there's lots that we're juggling. And so not mentioned if you're experiencing menopausal symptoms you might not feel like exercising so the research is suggesting that we are actually decreasing our activity at this point in time so it's just something to note that this is really important to to prioritize and I guess I take a all-or-something approach, not all-or-nothing approach. Anything is good, however
0: you can move your body. Oh, I like that too, Annie. I'm writing that down too.
2: Sometimes we think that it's got to be grand and intense and, you know, for, for it to, to have an impact, but reality is whatever you can fit in and whatever you can do will be great. In terms of nutrition, there's a couple of things that we want to think about. We've already touched on that, uh, a couple of them. Protein and plants. We really want to be protein and plant forward a couple of reasons. One, protein will help support that muscle mass that I talked about just before with that sort of age-related sapotenia. We need to to be making sure that we're getting in enough of our grow
0: foods to support our muscles. Oh, talk about a little bit more about psychopenia. I, I, whenever I hear that term, I just think of people's bottoms disappearing. <laughs> it's just suddenly there's a flat pancake there. What happened to my muscles? Yeah. What is it? Yeah. So,
2: I mean, there's, there's elements in terms of changes that come with ageing and there's elements that Come with, I guess, some of the hormonal changes as well. So, I guess that sarcopenia can happen just as a result of the aging process, the change in hormonal, but also as a result of being less active. And as I mentioned, this is a time in our life where we can become less active. So, we do need to be, I guess, sort of fighting against it a little bit. So, it is a combination of sort of age and hormone related changes along with a more sedentary lifestyle. It's always tough when you're like, damn! I am not blame everything on my hormones. I've actually got to got to do something. <laughs> yeah. Exercise is, is going to be really important, and our protein intake will help kind of support that muscle mass. Also, help. It's a it's a really sort of satiating nutrient, so it will help us feeling nice and full and satisfied. So we want to be protein and plant forward, and we really want to be protein and fiber. There's a couple of things that change. A loss of muscle includes sort of loss of smooth muscle, which can affect our digestion. We can also get changes in our gut microbiome. And so this is where we want to be making sure that we're getting in lots of plants, lots of fiber, fermented foods as well. So some of our get and cheese sauerkraut those sorts of things but sometimes sort of symptoms of perimenopause can be digestive issues like bloating diarrhea constipation excessive gas all of those sort of awesome things and so sometimes that can be as a result of changes through the perimenopause transition of other things we want to sort of be thinking about plant proteins as well so really sort of embracing our legumes and lentils um, and also some of our soy products as well so the tofu tempeh I know everybody kind of, when I say tofu, that's really but What I would say is, there is a marinated tofu from the supermarket. There's already some flavor in there um, and it can be actually a really thick and versatile protein. So keep an open mind, people. (laughs) And a couple of other things are going to be our our omega-3s. So perimenopause can also be a time of, I guess, a more of an inflammatory state. So estrogen is actually onto inflammatory and as our levels of estrogen decline. We can become sort of more in an inflammatory state. So thinking about things like our oily fish, so salmon, sardines, mackerel. There are some some plant options. Last but not least, thinking about sort of our polyphenols that are going to be really helpful and protective. So these are things like thinking like our berries. Like think about your reds and purple sort of coloured things, like our berries, red cabbage, olive oil, turmeric, ginger. So There's lots of considerations to make when it comes to our perimenopause transition, but also if you remember that this also isn't too far away from the guidelines that we talked about, so it's really just about maximising our our core food groups and minimising our intake of those discretionary foods.
1: I do like you calling them discretionary foods because it makes it feel better than they're not bad foods, they're just discretionary. Yeah, so
2: look, (laughs) I call them sort of soul foods really or, you know, treats or whatever sort of language works for you is that, you know, there are foods or or drinks that are good for the soul but aren't necessarily contributing to your, you know, daily nutrition and that's okay. If our intake is predominantly soul foods uh, and not enough whole foods, then, you know, that's when the balance is, is a little bit out of whack. So there's absolutely room for those things in, in our diets. It's just about getting the balance
0: right. What about alcohol, Annie? for people in
2: perimenopause? That's a really good question and it's a really tricky one because, you know, for people, particularly during this time, like alcohol can be a really nice outlet. It can be a really nice stress reliever. People might even be using it to help them get to sleep. But the realities of alcohol aren't great, particularly when it comes to perimenopause. You know, it can exacerbate symptoms, particularly some of those vasomotor symptoms like our sweating and and hot flashes these. The other thing is is if we're, you you know, sleep, can be an issue during these times, but alcohol generally is not, it might help us get to sleep, but it's not going to contribute to better quality sleep. Not to mention it can contribute to, I guess, sort of extra calories in our day and have the potential to, to contribute to weight gain. So again, you know, it's not something that I say never do, but I do think that this is we do really need to moderate and we do need to in some cases perhaps have a look at our relationship with alcohol as well. So you know, is it playing a role in terms of being a sleep aid or or a stress mental that and having a look at some of the tools and strategies that we can use for for those things instead.
1: Well, those are some really good tips, Annie. So I think that that really is a really good way for us to finish up our episode for today. Thank you so much for sharing your experience. Where can our listeners find you if they want to hear more?
2: So my website is allroundwellness.com.au or I am on Instagram at healthy.habits.dietitian.
1: he's also got a really great guide about how to make supermarket quick supermarket meals, so
0: we will make sure we link to that in the show notes as well. Thanks for listening. Show notes for this episode are available at lifeadminlifehacks.com. And if you're a fan, please subscribe and share the love and tell a friend or review us in your podcasting app. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn.